Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TWS podcast. It's lights out and away we go. I got free sausages sent to me every week for a year. Brilliant. <laughs> no, I never really got to, I never really got to a place where I could call Michael a friend of mine, really. Don't worry, guys, I'm back. Panic's over. I'm here. And it was Wayne Rooney who walked through the doors. And I remember him saying, just make the most of every moment. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Award School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set up this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sports men and women from a variety of sports. Joining today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional rugby player. He's played for Saracens, Leinster, Ireland, and the British Lions. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Wallace. I hope I said that right. <laughs> you have indeed. Uh, great to be here. Now, it's the British and Irish Lions. I'll have to correct you on that. We get very fussy in Ireland <laughs> over that. Carry on. Uh, yeah, great to be on, on board. and uh, Great to be chatting with you. Before we start, we just wanted to say that throughout this podcast, if you have any questions about us, about anything about our podcast, or you want to want to, or you have a question about autism, then please ask. We'd like to answer your questions too. Very much. And I personally like to tell everyone that this is a conversation, not an interrogation. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I've had enough interrogations in my time. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start. We start talking about your career. You ready? Sure. Okay, first what? First random question. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, former Captain Martin Johnson, maybe? Mm. From a rugby perspective. Mm -hmm. Or Philippe Salah. Yeah, mm -hmm. a couple of rugby guys in there. Franco Pinar. A few, a few old teammates who were quite, quite famous in their day. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> this one always uh, gets people. Doesn't it? Yeah. Um, I guess I'd, what would I like to be? Um, I, I, I don't know. There's too many, too many things I think I'd like to be. And, uh, but you look at all the repercussions. Um, yeah. I, I, <laughs> you okay over there? I, I wouldn't mind being the president of Ireland and uh, just having, uh, meeting all my friends in Orison Uctra on the presidential house for a day. That would be nice. <laughs> That'd be cool. Okay. I think this is a final random question. I'm not so sure. <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would you have and why? Any civil power. Superpower. What would you have superpower. and why? Superpower. Wow. Um, to make people happy. Aww, that's a nice yeah. one. <laughs> make people smile. Bring peace to the world. <laughs> Thank you for answering those questions. Let's chat about your career. We want to bring you... 
back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a rugby player? Yeah, well, growing up, I had three brothers and two brothers older than me were four and five years older. So um, I got roughed up enough, as you can imagine, <laughs> uh, d- during those years. It toughened me up a bit. A lot of rugby played in the back garden. Uh, sailing was probably the biggest sport in, in our family. We lived by the Sea Monks down in Cork. So and my dad was Olympic manager. So sailing was, was very much uh, probably the biggest sport in our family. Uh, and then Gaelic football. I uh, went to a Gaelic football school earlier on and uh, rugby, but uh, generally I think my physical size came into a, a favourite rugby and I always enjoyed it, the camaraderie especially. And I guess my in fact, my older brothers were playing as well. Uh, I wanted to emulate them and uh, yeah, sort of, yeah, just the culture I think of, of rugby is what really drew me to that away from the other sports. Uh, but yeah, no, I still like to sail a bit. Uh, um, I have a bad ankle, so I can't really play any team sports anymore. Oh, no. uh, that and old age. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some things you can still do into into your 50s like I am now. Hmm. Out of curiosity, did you ever accidentally throw a rugby ball through a window? There was a few. There was a few. <laughs> I, I blame my younger brother, though. So. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> you, you better hope your parents aren't listening now. They yes. know it's you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we had, we had a... A sort of a, a large garden shed with a lot of glass in it. And uh, oh, no. by the time we left that house, I would say it was uh, it, it was like a, a, an open roof rather than a, a garage because of the amount of broken glass we had. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. We also, we also, there was a wall we used to play tennis against, and that was right next to that. So, uh, yeah, that got a few tennis balls through there as well. The worst I did was dig a hole in my walls with a with a toy car. Okay, well done, well done. That's, uh, that's answering my door off my hinges. <laughs> okay, you started your career at Lancashire. Leinster. Leinster. Is that correct? Is that correct? What was it like, like as a young man joining them? Yeah, well, I first started off um, when I left school. I went to UCC University College Cork and played with them in rugby. And got to play with Munster. So that was UCC's based in Munster. It's very, very tribal here in four provinces. And the Munster-Leinster rivalry is particularly, particularly big. Imagine Leinster being like London and Munster being like uh, the Midlands. So you can imagine when you're playing against the big city team. Uh, Then after university, I moved to Dublin. And then I played with Leinster and uh, the club was Black Rock. In those days, it was still amateur. Uh, it was in the, the early 90s uh, and the club rugby was actually bigger than the prov- provincial rugby. So the big professional teams like Munster and Leinster would have had less following than some of the small club teams that we had in Ireland because they had a big uh, All-Ireland League. And then that all changed after the 95 World Cup in 1996. It became professional. And uh, at that stage, then I, I moved over to London to play with Saracens Um but uh, as it happened, I managed to play one season with Leinster and Saracens in the same year because I played for Leinster in Europe because the English clubs weren't in Europe in the European Cup. And I played in the domestic league with, uh, with Saracens. So that, that was a bit confusing. Speaking of it not being professional sport, when you started playing rugby, the sport was not professional, as I said. <clears throat> did you have another job at the time and how did you manage your job and rugby? 
I did indeed. When I left university, I went to a bank, First National Building Society. I worked in the marketing department and then I'd studied economics. So I went and worked in the treasury uh, division and everything was beginning to start going well on my career path. And then rugby turned professional. So it saved me from being a banker. Uh, becoming a sports <laughs> Bankers person. are a bunch of stiffs. Yeah. Which, which at, at, at the time, I, I thought that was brilliant. But when you retire from rugby and you look at your where your teammates are, your, 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 sorry, not your teammates, but your, your former classmates are and all that, and you're starting from scratch in your mid-30s again, it's not so good at that stage when you got to <laughs> start at the bottom of the barrel in your, in your business career post-rugby. But uh, that's one of the challenges of professional sport. But uh, in those early amateur days, um, you know, the, the bank were very, very supportive of me. Uh, and it was, um, you know, for training, for traveling for games, etc. as well as my university before that. And, and you really needed it. Uh, and I think even today, the, the universities for professional sports people, it's really important that they get that third level education, if that's the, the career path they want to go on and not wait till you've retired in your latter years. I was lucky that it was amateur, so we could go and do that, but it's much more difficult with full professional setups to go and do that third level education. Um, but you know, if, if you're set up to do that, I, I think it's very important that you, you make the extra effort and go along and do, do that. So the professional clubs that are encouraging it, I think it's greater. And I think it's um, also get, gets players, uh, sometimes when you're in a professional setup, it's very you're in a little a little world of your own and you don't see what's happening around you. But I think when you have an outlet going studying or whatever it might be, um, you might be, you know, learning carpentry, uh, whatever profession it is. But you should be doing something for for life after um, after rugby as well. So a lot of guys finish up and don't know what to do and are left stuck. And it can be a, a really tough time in uh, talking to a lot of former players. Uh, you don't make the the large, well, very few people do anyhow, players, uh, the large sums of money that maybe you might make in soccer. So it's very important that your, your it's only a part of your career. And post uh, rugby, it's very important to have uh, an area to, to slip into. What motivated you to get at the time to get out of bed every day in your early 20s? To, to get out training, is it? No, to get out of bed. Oh, get out of bed? Yeah, what oh, motivated you to get out of, bed. out of bed? No, no uh, early 20s. No, it was always great. Um, well, I always had a huge desire to go and I wanted to play for my country. I was very lucky in my early days. I played two seasons on the Irish schools team. So... Uh, at that stage, I had a, uh, you know, a career path sort of map, mapped out to go and play for Ireland. That was my dream growing up, that I would emulate the the um, the um some of the former Irish greats and go on and wear that green jersey. Uh, never thought I'd get on to, to, to wear the Lions jersey, but that was something that just came on its own. Um, the... Yeah, so I, I, you, when you have that focus, and I guess I had a very competitive streak... So when you get into that training, it's it, it's very important. My brothers as well, especially Richard, who played for Ireland the Lions as well. He was those few years older, and he was uh, very professional in the amateur era for all his training. And we'd get these programs, but a lot of uh, the amateurs wouldn't follow through on them. But Richard was a stickler for that, and uh, 
I guess I surrounded myself with people who were very professional in the amateur days. As I like to say, we were we were also very amateur in the professional days in, the, in that we enjoyed a good <laughs> night out, uh, maybe more so than the guys these days. But in the amateur days, we were very professional. Anyhow, the sort of grouping that I would have been, uh, would know, and my brothers as well. My motivation is have an annoying alarm clock attached to your phone, <laughs> have, a, have a younger sister sharing your room, and a trio of very yappy dogs who would happily, when the the instant, if you're still asleep, and mom and, and your mom and, and my mom and dad decide to open the door, the dogs will rush in, <laughs> jump on the beds, and lick the living daylights out of whoever's still in bed. <laughs> uh, that's the best alarm clock you can have. Yep. Three crazy dogs. Yeah. Well, I I've I've six year old twins, and it could be the same some days. Oh. You then joined Saracens. Saracens in 1996 as, rug- as rugby just turned professional. What differences did you notice when the game turned professional? Um, well, as I mentioned previously there, the, the training schedules we'd had, we were training as if we were professionals in the amateur day and, and uh, our, a lot of, uh, I suppose, the, the bank I was working with were very, very good in supporting that and giving me the time away that I required. Um, but the one thing we mentioned when it's full time is the amount of rest you get uh, and the quality of training was at a different level. In fact, in the early days, we were probably overtraining because uh, there was a thought process. You know, you're you're now a professional. You should be training nine to five. So they were trying to fill the whole day. Well, I think they rest is the most important part of that and getting the yep, quality, yep. not the quantity of training. Mm-hmm. So it was trying to tune into, right, it's actually okay to go and lie on the couch and watch TV and have a nap, uh, you know, for two hours in the middle of the day. Because if you don't, things could just go exactly. like a roller coaster. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm good. And then, I don't know, I don't know, oh no, oh no, oh no. Well, probably the, the greatest player, who was most capped player uh, internationally at the time was Philippe Selah from France, who could still have been playing for France. And he was 35, so he was 37, he was playing with us. And he always had a siesta. And to play as well as he did at his age um, was, you know, a, a great uh, vindication for having a nap in the middle of the day, that little siesta. It's... Uh, it really repowers you, gets the batteries going. and uh, But uh, unfortunately, initially, some things like our diet was really out, that they had us having too many sugars in, in what we were eating and in the carbohydrates, etc. Uh, and that also changed around a bit. Uh, so a lot of science wasn't really correct. And with the training, I think we were overtraining. And uh, the other thing was the, the amount of games we were playing. All of a sudden, it was up to nearly 50 games a year you might be playing. And in one season, 97, it was over 50 games I played that season. I think it was about 53. So okay. uh, and I, and we were generally playing 80 minutes a game. So with a lot of training, so a lot, a lot out of the system. And sometimes that, that over a course of uh, a few seasons, that can really burn out players. So your, your quality your quality of performance goes down as well. So nowadays it's much better balanced in the number of games you're allowed to play. Um, there's all sorts of monitors of with regards to how your system is, if you're, um, your heart rate, et cetera, and, and if you need to be rested or pulled out of training sessions, et cetera. So it's a lot more scientific now than those early days of professionalism. But not as much fun. Alyssa, do you think we should speak to the head teacher and see if we have a nap during the school day? 
That won't get us very far too quick. <laughs> that isn't going to happen. I, I don't think there'll be much napping done. Probably more messing. Nigel Ray invested in the club in 1996 and brought in some big players, such as France War... We can call him Matt Damon because Matt Damon played Francois in um, <laughs> Invictus, isn't it? The uh, the movie Invictus, where he was at the World yeah. Cup. Michael Lina? Yeah. Lina. Yeah. And the person you previously mentioned, Philip Seller. Yeah, and, 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 and much easier someone like Richard Hill. Isn't that much easier to pronounce? <laughs> I, I threw in the difficult ones for her. <laughs> yes. yes. Claire. What is the what was the impact of this at the club? And take us back to that time, please. When I arrived in 96, uh, it was still a, an amateur club. It was just turning professional. Uh, Saracens was due to be relegated, but they decided to enlarge by an extra team into the, the premiership. And they stayed up. And a lot of that was down to Nigel and Nick Leslow, who would have been a co-investor with him, and their investment into Saracens at the time, which was great. Like, Nigel never looked to make any money out of rugby. He just wanted to make it sustainable and put some of his wealth back into uh, sport and rugby in general, where he was a real super fan. I've never seen an owner as involved in a club from his mother to his children, Lucy's CEO, his daughter at the moment still. And it, it is, um, you know, Saracens and all their success is very much down to Nigel and his uh, generosity of spirit to rugby uh, and also his just love of the game. Uh, and, and, and it's done so much for England rugby as well when you look at the amount of international and other countries that, have, that, that players have come through and played for. Um, so I don't, don't know where I was going, what well, the question was in the first place. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was an amateur club then. So a lot of players were near the end of their careers. Uh, some players who played for England and they would train in the evenings. And then there was the full-time professionals who came in. They were on a part-time. Uh, and, and it was training at night under the lighting was terrible. Uh, Francois, as you mentioned, came in and he managed to change a lot of this as director of rugby and demanded better uh uh, training conditions and uh, yeah there was a lot of movement in that regard but also the experience I suppose the success we went to, our first game was against Leicester Tigers who were the top team in England at the time and we beat them from a team that was meant to be relegated and from then on we went very well we were runners up by a point I think to Newcastle the following year and won the cup um, but it was really drawn from I guess the star players like Michael Liner who's the top point scorer in the world and Philly Salah, uh, the most capped player, you know, having those players and then some great young players that went on to play for England, like Kieran Bracken, uh, Richard Hill, Tony Diprose. And then there was an Irish, uh, myself, my brother Richard, Paddy John. So we we, we had a, a, a great chemistry as well with the players that had been in the club uh, for quite a few seasons. And we blended seamlessly. Uh, we, we had a I think a pre-season tour up to Scotland to Stirling and it was the fun like all the international new pros that had come in uh, completely bought into all the traditions with the, the, the court games the drinking games all that and it was so so everyone sort of bonded like that as, as as does happen in rugby on a night out it's some sometimes a way to get players together and enjoy enjoy each other's company and have that trust and respect for each other Um 
so so that blended and then the following season after that it went full-time professional so unfortunately there was a lot of players there uh, John Buckton was one for instance who played centre for England and he had to concentrate on his uh, his professional career. He was 35, 36. He wasn't quite making the team with Felice Salah there. Um, so some of the younger players turned full-time professionals. Some of the others uh, maybe lost a year or two on their careers uh, and went to play with a, a semi-professional club where they could still work because they knew uh, they couldn't drop out of their um, their careers just, just for a year or two at, at professional rugby. You made your Ireland debut in... 1995 at the World Cup against Japan. Firstly, take us back to that moment where where you found out you were selected for the World Cup. And then what was it like to t- bake? Make. Make your debut. Spelling it error. Yeah, it, it was great. I've been involved in around the uh, the Irish team for a while, but playing the front row, you tend to be... Um, you, you get into the national setups a bit later than maybe some backs or back row. Uh, so there was some players I played with underage levels internationally and they were getting to make it and I was getting a little bit edgy. And then uh, I got called up for the 95 World Cup. I was the only young cap player going there. I was 23. and uh, got that first cap against Japan and that was fantastic. It really was. We'd, um, you know, got to witness the first game we had in New Zealand. The great Jonah Lomo was playing uh, my brother was marking him, and uh, after he got ran over about four or five times. <laughs> Wait, what? Him and the rest of the team. Uh, you know, it was great just to be in uh, you know, in Ellis Park to watch that Jonah first moment uh, sitting on the bench. But to get the first cap in Bloemfontein, where we beat Japan quite well, it was huge. But probably bigger again was um, coming back to Ireland and getting my first cap in Lansdowne Road uh, against Fiji, scoring my first try on the first home game. Um, you know, it was it was, uh, it was great. It was you you felt you'd made it, but then you got to go right now. You got to establish yourself in the team, and then that's when the real hard work begins. Run over. <laughs> Who let a vehicle in a rugby match? <laughs> well, John Alomo is uh, is a vehicle. God rest his soul. He has passed away. But uh, he was uh, one of the most powerful, dynamic runners, I think, ever. You need to look at a couple of videos of John Alomo. It's uh, in his prime. Show you some videos, Alyssa. Yeah. Sure, yeah. you will. Very big, very fast. Yeah. No, no. no. Car. <laughs> what, what is your standout memory from that World Cup? Um, <clears throat> as we get my first cap, there's a few. Um, seeing Lomo in full flight. Uh, and that final, I thought, was huge as well. Uh I had been to South Africa before, but my um, to see it uh, at that level for an extended period of time, and it's a country I've sort of really fallen in love with, South Africa, uh, one of the best places to tour, and I highly recommend it uh, as somewhere to travel to um, if anyone gets the opportunity. Two years later, you were selected to go on tour with the British and Irish Lions. <laughs> this is the first time the Lions have faced a current World Cup champion in South Africa. Take us back to the moment you found out you were selected. How did you find out? I wasn't originally selected on the on the squad uh, because, uh, well, I was still relatively young, <laughs> top years, and there was Di Young who had played uh, the series in Australia eight years beforehand, Jason Leonard four years beforehand. And uh, we had a bad finish to our 
Six Nations campaign, which always, the last game always, uh, we lost to Scotland away where we're expected to win. And that was a sort of, uh, I think I got knocked out of the reckoning. So, uh, but early on, a couple of days in before the lines had set off for South Africa, I got called up when uh, Peter Claus, he got injured, who was an, an Irish uh, teammate of mine, um, who I had a lot of competition with in the Irish setup. So uh, I was quite, um, I'd been quite miffed losing out and had a real chip on my shoulder going over, uh, something to prove. And I think it actually was a huge benefit for me to go in and prove myself like that. Uh, it was very difficult, though, as I mentioned, having Jason and Di ahead of me. Uh, I didn't get a lot of opportunities, but um, uh, when I did get there, just you, all you wanted to do was try and prove yourself to all these legends of the game you're playing alongside. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I, my form was good enough. I got to play in the, in the series uh, in all three tests, and uh, we won the first two, and we let them have the third one, to be polite. Um, and uh, it was the first series win. Uh, the only other only other series win is 1974. So it's, uh, it's, it's it was a big thing to win in South Africa, Alliance Test Series. Um, so Alyssa, we've got a question that's coming from one of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do have a question for, for myself or one of the hosts, then please get in touch and contact us. We'd love to answer your questions. So this week's question comes from Amy from Leicestershire and she asks my daughter is autistic and I want to know more about autism masking do you ever feel that you have to cover up your autism in different situations to try and fit in with others unfortunately it is something that happens generally more with girls girls so your daughter might try it the thing is not everyone understands kids people with autism and that can result in many negative things. Bullying being the main one for autistic kids. Kids. The trick is to get them plenty of support. Support. And maybe send them to a school where they don't feel like they have to mask it. Because the, the, for me, my parents, they sent me to Tetna Wood. Which is why... I didn't wind up masking my autism from others. Well then, can you think of a time, Melissa, or do you currently in situations, as as Amy said, mask your autism? Or can you think of a time where you maybe masked in social, in social situations? There was this one time I masked it. I don't quite remember all the details, I think we took a school trip to a different school. My teachers were helping out a few other kids and I was left alone with a group of, I think I was, I think I was alone with a bunch of kids. And I kind of saw, sort of noticed what they were doing. I noticed what I was doing might be a little strange to them. So I kind of stop myself from doing the things I usually do. And then how did that make you feel at the time? Um, well, I was a kid, so I was young enough where where I didn't exactly know that I was per se masking it as more of a adapting myself to a situation. 
Okay, but nice. it would have been would be considered masking it now, and pro- it would probably make some, me uncomfortable if I had to hide why I was again. Again, the main thing with masking is it tends to cause uncomfortableness in the person that's masking their autism. Yeah, and that's really good. Listen, it's really interesting as well to hear your story. So thank you much. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. And thank you very much to Amy for asking a question. And if, if you have a question about autism about sport or about anything to do the podcast then please get in touch you can get in touch on our website which is www.twssportspodcast.co.uk there you can leave us um, an email you can send us voice notes so if you know of a guest that we've got coming up and you think oh, i really want to ask the questions that guest then please send us a question in or you just want to pester me and me adam and and, and jacob jacob about something <laughs> Your brother Richard went on tour with the Lions four years earlier. Did that give you motivation to go on a Lions tour? And what did Richard say to you about the 1993 tour to New Zealand? Uh, yeah, it was very amateur, actually, the 93 tour. And it, was, uh, it, it wasn't seen as one of the great tours. And uh, there was a lot of players that had, were on our tour from that. And one of the big issues was they split the team in two. So there was the team that was going to play on Saturday and the team on Wednesday. And it got very disjointed. And one of the things before we went on the 97 tour was we set all the rules, the players, I mean, set all the rules, the management asked us to. And then uh, one of the, the guarantees was that everyone was going to get a fair and equal chance. It doesn't matter who you are uh, to get in the test side. And I think that was justified when you look at a number of players, uh, Tom Smith, the other prop as well, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago and uh, great, great guy. Um, Tommy Tommy, and myself would never have been expected to get in that team, but we were given the opportunities and we did get in and the same for other positions on the pitch. So <clears throat> I think it was keeping that competitiveness uh, throughout the group made it a very happy camp, but also everyone had to raise their game everyone and no one was guaranteed a spot well besides maybe captain martin johnson i was no one's going to drop him uh too scary and so I, I think that was one of the big things and, and you know for me the, the my last memory of the lines before going on the tour was after my exams at university the match at two o'clock in the morning watching it and falling asleep at halftime waking up when the game was over and then next thing you're you're on the tour four years later it's uh, it's funny how though you know you go from a student fan watching it to actually play because of that four-year gap. So, uh, yeah. That 1997 tour had the famous Living living with the Lions documentary. What are your memories of that and allowing cameras yep. into yeah. the squad for the first time? Yeah, it, it was quite, un- yeah, it made you a bit anxious. I was one of the younger, more exper- inexperienced players, so I was avoiding the cameras and... Uh, yeah, so you won't see too much of me on on the footage, but there were some great characters. Um, John Bentley Bentos was a big rugby league uh, player from Leeds, and he, he was hilarious, really was. And Doddy Weir, uh, who again passed away. Unfortunately, we've lost too many uh, players from that trip. Um, and Doddy was uh, fantastic. Rob Wainwright. Uh, some players just really came to life with the camera, and behind the camera and uh, 
it actually was a bit of a bonding thing as well. There was lots of pranks. You can imagine there was an awful lot uh, that was cut out in edits. Um, and it's it's quite a humorous uh, documentary. I recommend you watch it. But uh, the the uncut version would have been much more entertaining again, <laughs> I'd imagine. And entertaining, I assume you mean, don't let kids watch it. <laughs> yes, uh, no, it's all, all above board, all above board. Maybe not the unedited parts, but yeah. <laughs> Which players do you think liked having the cameras there the, mo- the most? Oh, now, there's quite a few, quite a few. John Bentley loves the camera. He <laughs> loves it. it has to be John by a, a born entertainer. The Lions coach, Sir Ian... Me- <laughs> I'm, t- I'm going <laughs> to... I'm testing you. Can, can you, you, you can just call him Geet. He prefers to be called Geet. Okay. Geet said... <laughs> That with, with that with Paul Wallace, you just saw him grow and do things in a Lions jersey. I think lifted him as a player and lifted the team in a way that, in the way that he was playing. Would you agree with this? Yeah, I certainly did. Play, when you're playing with that sort of quality of players, I think you you grow and um, uh, yeah, the skill levels were that bit higher than the national team Ireland. Uh, we had a very good forward pack back then, but uh, we didn't really have the greatest attacking game. Our, our, our backline, some very good individual players, but the cohesiveness and uh, the way they ran as a unit wasn't there. And all of a sudden we had, uh, you know, the, the quality of players had gone up immensely. Now, we for the first test, we had four Irish players picked and Eric Miller, four of the eight forwards were, were Irish. And Eric, uh, unfortunately, um, had, had the flu and had to cry off. But uh, it, it was great for us as well because we hadn't been having a uh, we'd been having a very unsuccessful period of time. But uh, Keith Wood, Jeremy Davidson, myself, Jeremy went on to be the players player of the series, which is the award that every player strives for. Uh, but once you're playing amongst that quality um, and the leadership on the pitch as well from the senior players and and the management, Jim Telfer, Ian McGeegan was just um, second to none and. We got we got levels of performance individually and as a team that we didn't believe we probably had. So we were surpassing our own expectations and our own performances. And I think that's all down to laying down the the platform of the squad and uh, how we trained and expecting just excellence. And when you think that's a hundred percent, you find out it's not. There's another ten, twenty. Your hundred percent is only eighty percent and or ninety percent. And you find those extra little bits and that's what wins big test matches uh, especially against the likes of a world champion South Africa in South Africa we just want to stop with the questions about your career for a moment and play would you rather game you up for that oh I play it every night of my children yeah <laughs> you ready yep night in or night out nowadays night in <laughs> True. I, it was always a night out man up, up until a couple of years ago till, till I had children well, they're all, what's the both six? Six, yeah. Hmm. Beach holiday or city break? Beach holiday. Hmm. Would you rather talk to animals or speak every language? Talk to animals. They're much more interesting. Okay, Mr. Doolittle. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather explore space or explore the bottom of the ocean? Bottom of the ocean. Okay. Would you rather go forward 200 years and see your future family or go back 
200 years and meet your ancestors? You know what? I, I, I'm a bit of a history buff, so I think I'd go back 200 years. Okay. That's all with the would you rather. <laughs> we have a list of people who you have played with at some point in your career. I want you to tell us what they were like and if you have have any stories or memories of them. You ready? Yep. Danny, I am going to... Danny Grucock. Danny, yeah, great player, Danny. He, I remember him coming in from Coventry, very strong Coventry accent. Uh, <laughs> uh, he yeah, went on to play for the Lions in Australia. Uh, he was um, a black belt in judo and a pretty tough man until he was off the pitch. And then he was a little bit of... Uh, on the pitch, he was a very tough man, but off the pitch, not quite so. Uh, is it a type? And uh, the toughest trainer, he he was. We used to call him Robolock because he used to be like this. But he his coordination. But he worked so hard. He would always stay after training longer than anyone else. Practicing his passing drills and that, and it brought him onto the England team and onto the lines as well. Just from that hard, tough work ethic. Leo. Cullen. Cullen. Leo Cullen. Leo, the polar bear. We call him. Uh, <laughs> Leo was Leo, Leo. Was, yeah, Leo's uh, lions, not polar yeah. bears. Yeah, oh, he looks like a polar bear. Um, definitely very <laughs> blonde hair, and uh, yeah, does same sort of hodge. He's uh, well, great guy, very one of the smartest rugby people around. He's coaching Leinster now, uh, to a lot of success. Uh, or be should be a bit few more finals won. Uh, but he was great, he one of the hardest working guys on the pitch. He wasn't the naturally physically. The, the the best uh, second row around, but he was always so important to a team doing all the on-scene work and just his rugby intelligence. Incredibly smart rugby player. And the only person I've ever chatted to before he retired and said, you should be a coach. Because I think a lot of people go into coaching just because they can't think of anything else. But he's so well suited for it and he's doing a great job. Trevor. Trevor Brennan. Trevor Brennan. <laughs> Oh, this is going to be good. If you're like the Barn Hall Bruiser, uh, one of the great raconteurs of all time. He'll never leave the truth get in the way of a good story. Um, <laughs> he, uh, a character, character is the best way. And one of the toughest tacklers, probably the toughest tackler um, I ever played with. Very successful. Well, he, he was just on the fringes in Leinster in Ireland, but really made himself a huge name down in Toulouse, winning French Championships, European Cups, and uh, uh, just an absolute character. You're always going to have fun when you meet Trev. You mentioned the three nicknames there. What was what was your nickname? My Mine was sort of a boring one I was never able to, to shake off, which was just Wally, pure old Wally. Wally. Yeah. Standard. Wally, <laughs> like the robot? A cute Wallace little Wally. robot that recycles <laughs> a lot? Yeah, it wasn't good growing up in the uh, 1980s when you had, uh, uh, from fools and horses, you complete Wally. So uh, <laughs> it wasn't the best nickname to have, but it was never able to shake it off and still have it to this day. Or well, Wally is in the guy that you have to try and find in a book. Well, that guy <laughs> as well. Some people, yeah, I, I found it difficult to find me when I, when I want to go missing. <laughs> what is the one memory that sticks in your head the most that happened off the field in on the 1997 tour? Off the field? Ooh, um, 
you're not allowed to talk about most of those uh, incidents. <laughs> um, let me have a think. Do you know what it was? After we won the second test, we went mm. up to a place called Vanderbilt Park. It was in the middle mm -hmm. of nowhere uh, because they thought it was going to be so much media around. We wanted to make it very difficult for the media to get to us. It was up in the Val River, very far north of South Africa. Um, we got there, but we'd won the series, so we wanted to go on a night out. So um, Tom Smith, God rest his soul, Jeremy Davis and myself got one of these combi vans, a minivan, and we went uh, that we had um, for being driven around training, etc. And we went out and looked for a bar. We couldn't find a bar anywhere till we came across uh, a falling down wooden shack above a gas station, and it had a line lager sign on. So we said, "This is it. this is great." So we rang the guys and said where we were. So they all arrived in. So first, the three of us went in and said, uh, you know, all these guys in army fatigues, uh, you know, real countrymen, Afrikaners, uh, big men. And they say, who are you guys? And they said, we're the lions. And they all laughed at us. And they couldn't understand who we were and what we were doing there. And then all of a sudden, we had Martin Johnson, Jeremy Guscott, all these well-known, Jeremy, who just landed the drop goal to win it, uh, Scott Gibbs, all these guys coming in, all in to have a few drinks in this little shack in the middle of nowhere. And they still wouldn't believe we were the lines till we live. But when we were leaving, they said, here are the keys, leave them to the letterbox when you're leaving. Well, that was great South African hospitality. And a great way to, um, you know, when you're in a city after you win to celebrate together, it's very difficult because guys are going left, you know, going here, going there, meeting friends that are down. But to have us all stuck there, uh, it was a great evening. Um, unfortunately, it probably led to a few guys crying off and not playing in the third test that we lost. But uh, uh, you know, test series need to be celebrated. 1997 is the last time the Lions won a test series in South Africa. What made the Lions team so good to go to South Africa and beat the world champion? I think it's character, characters that were in the individual characters in the management and the players, uh, a selflessness to play for each other. Um, and leadership of Martin Johnson, and uh, yeah, the 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 intelligent game plan of Ian McGeekin, the hard nosed approach to Jim Telford. There was a lot of components that went into it, uh, but I think one of the main things is everyone was given a fair fighting chance to get in in into the test team. And it meant that everyone was united as a squad and everyone was just happy to play every minute they could for each other. How has the role of a prop change of a prop? Prop? Yeah. Do you mean pro? Props, a prop is a position of a prop. Prop changed over the last 20 years. Uh, it's, uh, well, I, I would have always been myself and Tom, who actually played on that tour, would have been quite loose players. We played a lot of sevens rugby and um, played both were former back row players. So we had good handling abilities. But even, even by that standard nowadays, when you look at the passing skills of props in particular is just huge. Their mobility around the park uh, is probably improved as well in general. Um some in some teams, some teams are just big physical bruisers still, like it used to be in the old days. Um, but I think there's for the top teams, there's a lot more asked of them, and it's not just the set set pieces anymore. Back in Ireland now, and then you had a home World Cup where you played all of your groups get group games in D Dublin, 
Dublin. What are your memories of that and how was it different to the to the 1995 World Cup? Uh, well, it was professional. We had a lot more time together beforehand. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have a very successful World Cup. Uh, we were mm. knocked out by Argentina. Um, mm. We started off well with a record score win against the US. Um, our, uh, Australia went on to win it. Uh, and they, yeah, we had a tough fight with them. The scoreline was a bit flattering for Australia, I thought, at the end of the day. Um, beat Romania well. And then it was, it was that Argentina game. Uh, which, yeah, I ended up about this much short of the line with the ball in the last play. And only last or two years ago, uh, how many years on? 20 years on, 20 plus years on, actually looked at the, the game on YouTube. And I'm clearly tackled from behind by a player in the rock, which I, I when I was carrying the ball over, I was sure I was going to score it. And uh, I couldn't understand till I saw that one of them illegally did that. So it should really have been a penalty try and we should have gone through. But these are referees' decisions. Uh, and back then, you didn't have the same video analysis and social media. So there was nothing really made of it. Um, but it, very disappointing. It was great to play that time of year in September. The sun was out. The supporters in Ireland were great. Um, but uh, ultimately, it was seen as a big failure that we didn't go on further. We have a very different and metaphorical, not literal, question for you now, but you have to think about it carefully. You up for it? Go on. You have a paperclip and you're given 20 minutes to hide it somewhere in your house. After another 20 minutes, there will be five FBI agents that will enter your house and they'll have an hour to find the paperclip. Where are you going to hide the paperclip and why? Not literally, we don't literally have five FBI agents waiting outside your door. I don't okay. even want to do that. That's good to know, that's good to know. Um, you're probably putting a toilet brush holder, wouldn't you? No one would want to look there. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> that's the FBI. The FBI thing. are known for tearing houses uh, apart are, until do, they find what they're looking for. You know what is a great one? You know, when you have a wash bag, you've got these tiny little pockets in it mm -hmm. and you always find the weirdest things in there. Slip it into mm -hmm. it and you don't really see it. That's probably where I might stick it. I hope, <laughs> I hope no one's coming into my house now. <laughs> well, if they are, you'll be prepared. Yeah. Ireland have never got past the quarterfinal stages of the World Cup. Why do you think this is? Uh, well, I think we were very unfortunate this year. We were certainly, uh, there was any one of four teams they could have won at England weren't far off that. But I think France, Ireland, South Africa, New Zealand were all at a similar, very similar level. Uh, a couple of referees' decisions in the scrum, personally, I thought was the difference between Ireland and New Zealand in that quarterfinal. Um, in other years, I just don't think we were good enough, is the the answer. Um Maybe in Australia back in, uh, what year was that, 2007, was it? Um, might have been the, or 2005, um, but w w where they went well. But we generally haven't been good enough team, haven't had enough depth, not enough play. We, we, we've been winning triple crowns, maybe six nations, but we weren't good enough to go and beat the Southern Hemisphere sides. The fact we went down and beat a, won a series in New Zealand uh, during last summer, uh, I've taken all the big scalps. We're number one in the world for quite a long time, 17 games unbeaten. Uh, I think Ireland are certainly good enough to go and win a World Cup now. Uh, I think we were very unfortunate in the quarterfinal, as were France. 
Um, but you know, it's always going to be one or two decisions was going to be in between it. You can't have everything your way. So I think we've got a bad rub of the green, excuse the pun. Um, but I think the great thing is Irish rugby is on a is still on a high, and there's more young players coming through. And I'm convinced with a fairer draw next season, this this year, or say next World Cup, this this World Cup, we had the top four teams and the, the same same side, which meant it was so difficult for Ireland to get through. Um, I, I'm sure we're going to break that duck at the next World Cup. What is the one question you would never, ever answer? One question I'd never, ever answer. I don't know. I answered pretty much every question. <laughs> What's the one question in general that you would never, ever answer? If the child uh, has somehow game to answer who, it. Who's my favourite child? <laughs> that's that yeah that's but, one but thing a parent answer, would never be able to answer I, I will answer they're both the same <laughs> that's when they literally are they identical or nope no boy and a girl so that means they're not yeah. they're definitely not yeah. <laughs> they were identical I joke saying well twins are technically yeah. DNA copies of each other that just went down twice <laughs> yeah okay you retired in 2003, after a number of injuries, how did you feel about the retirement? Uh, yeah, I was pretty uh, upset at the time. Um, it was I was quite young. I broke my leg when I was 29, and it wasn't quite right for the next couple of seasons. It was about six to eight months recovering, and then got back playing, and then it wiped out completely. Um, but yeah, I, I felt I had a lot to prove, a lot more to do. And uh, yeah, I felt... Uh, my time had been cut short, but on reflection, I was very lucky to have uh, a lot of success in my career in the earlier years. So a lot of players have gone a bit further than that. Every week on our podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other, to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be, <clears throat> and the question is going to be for. So we get some rather strange ones asked to people sometimes. This question, this week's question, comes from our previous guest, who was a former, who was a former Lions teammate of yours, rugby player T- Tim Tim Stimson. Tim Tim Simpson, Stimson, whatever. Who asks, what do you feel the most guilty about in your career, and what would you would you go back and do differently about it? I don't oof, do I have anything that I'm guilty about in my career. Um... Missing training sessions are probably the, the the only the only thing. Yeah, yeah. Could you do the same, please? Can you think of a ne- of a question to for our, our next guest? But we aren't going to tell you who the guest is. The question can be anything you want. Yeah. Um, what is the greatest moment in their career? I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcasts on to podcast on to to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Paul. We really enjoyed speaking with you, and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Many thanks. Absolute pleasure, and good luck with the rest of your podcasts. Okay, Alyssa. Hmm? So Paul's just gone. You did that all on your own. So Jacob isn't with us today so you had a, a lot of pressure of, of interviewing Paul on your own how do you feel it went it went really well he was a ton of fun <laughs> he was what was your your favorite story or your favorite thing he said hmm the favorite thing he probably brought 
up was the incidents with the little shack. Yeah, that's something I could I can imagine it. I've got this picture in my head now of a little shack in the middle of South Africa, and you've got ten British and Irish lions coming up for for a drink. You got these massive six foot plus men and in this little tiny shack. And they're like, um <laughs> and the barman just gives them the keys and says, just lock up when you're ready. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of beer was drunk that night and a lot of um people said things they shouldn't have. <laughs> probably, probably did. Alyssa, well done. Um you did a great job. And also Alyssa, coming up very soon is our hundredth episode of the podcast. Wow. I know. <laughs> So I think on December the 12th, we'll be releasing our 100th episode. Mm. So this is episode 97. So we got this and then three more to our 100th. And that'll be a very special one, especially mm-hmm. for people from Wolverhampton. Um, we got a great guest for you in a in a great location. So um, that's a big one. And that is the school bell going. So I think that's time to wrap it up. Yeah, I would say so. See you later. Bye bye. T- till next time. PicturePath is an award-winning visual timeline app that's empowering individuals with autism. This free app provides a simple way for users to plan out activities, such as going to a match or theatre, using structured timelines that reduce stress and anxiety. Users create a visual timeline that caters to their specific daily needs, allowing them to prepare for activities, events and routines. PicturePath provides a structure that enhances communication, promotes independence, improves memory recall and supports users to manage their day with confidence. Whether for personal use or in educational settings, PicturePath is the ultimate tool for individuals with additional needs, empowering them to manage their schedules, track progress, and enjoy more activities. PicturePath, download the app today. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.